And that, of course, was based upon Psalm 32. Now, please open your Bibles again to the book of Zechariah. Sixth century BC prophet, the people of God have returned from Babylonian captivity, and they are in the process of heeding the prophet's call to rebuild the temple that was in ruins because of the destruction from the Babylonian invasion. And today we are taking chapters 7 and 8 together, which is unusual, but they hang together, and I think you need to see how they hang together. And these chapters form a section of, them, of, 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 of their own. We've seen in chapter 1, the first six verses, a call to repentance, and then following that, the night visions of Zechariah. Now we come to this historical portion, chapters 7 and 8. Then we'll take a break because of the Christmas season and come back after the first of the year for chapters 9 through 14 that form the prophetic portion of the book of Zechariah. Before we read chapters 7 and 8, yes, we're going to read both chapters, let us bow before the Lord. Our Father, we are very, very grateful that we have the Word of God. Where would we be without the Word? We ask, Father, that we would love the Word, that we would care about the details of the Word, that we would want to know and understand insofar as is possible, yes, the history and the development and the redemptive flow, but also, Father, we would know Thee in this Word. We would seek the Lord in this Word. We would fellowship with Thee in this Word, and we pray that we will see on every page, the revelation of thy mercy to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, whether it be in the Old or in the New Testament. And Father, we pray that someone who may be here today who is in need of Christ, who has never come to him, never trusted in Christ, would trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior this morning. Build up thy people in the most holy faith, We are completely dependent upon the work of the Spirit of God, and we pray especially for those who may may be at some point in their lives in which they are burdened with sin, a believer burdened with sin, uh, things that they simply need to get out of their lives, and that they would hear the call of God's Word in this passage and receive the promises therein. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We're going to read chapters 7 and 8 of the book of Zechariah. This is the word of the Lord. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her in the south and the lowland were inhabited? 
And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro and the pleasant land was made desolate. And the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again, have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah? Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. 
And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons for joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am coming. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the year is 518 B.C. Two years have passed since the last night visions. Within another two years, the temple that they have been building will have been completed. And these are very prosperous times. But prosperous times can be spiritually dangerous times. And as we read these two chapters, 7 and 8, the questions we should be asking ourselves are questions such as, are are our hearts, is my heart, God-directed? Uh, Are our hearts, is my heart, God-centered? Or am I centered upon myself, centered upon other things than the true and the living God? Now, in this context, the town of Bethel, 10 miles above Jerusalem, once a site of rebellion against the truth, but now showing concern for religion, sends representatives with a question about fasting. And they asked about fasting in the fifth month, as you read there in chapter 7, verse 3. But in chapter 8, verse 19, other fasts are mentioned in answer to the question as well. They had held the fifth month fast for 70 years. They were commemorating the destruction, the burning of Jerusalem. And it seemed very incongruous to them that they would continue this fast when the people have returned and the temple is en route to being completed. Should we continue this fast that we, have been, that we have been involved in for these 70 years? Well, you know, God had only commanded one fast, and that fast was on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest entered into the most holy place and through blood atoned for the sins of the people. He had not commanded this fast. But the Lord knows the heart, and his answers to them, the way in which he replies, is very heart-searching. And it should not have only been heart-searching for them, but it should be heart-searching for me and for you as well this morning. God's reply gets at the motives of the heart, and that is the first point of the sermon, motives of the heart. The issue is true heart religion. The Lord knows our hearts. He knows us intimately. He knows us because He is the infinite God inside out. He knows that there are self-centered motives to be exposed and sifted so that God's people might be further sanctified and we might grow in grace. And he does this because he will have his own glory in the hearts and lives of his people. And he does this also for our good because he loves us. And in this, we find an ongoing call for 
faith and repentance toward Christ. Now keep your finger here, if you will, and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 23, a very familiar verse, but I want you to read it with your own eyes, if you will, this morning. Proverbs chapter 23. And the verse is verse 26. And even though the, the, this proverb is given in a section in which a father is warning his sons against sexual immorality, it's applicable to the Christian life at any point, at any time, and for all of us. And I'm looking at verse 26 of Proverbs 23, where God says to us, My son, give me your heart, and let your eyes observe my ways. Yes, the earthly father, but the heavenly father says to us, My son, give me your heart. My daughter, give me your heart. Older person, give me your heart. Young person, child, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Now turning back to Zechariah chapter 7, that verse summarizes what God is doing with God's people in this section of Scripture. He is saying to thee, he is saying to them, give me your heart. So he asked them the question, for whom were you fasting? You see, there's no time when Christians are off-duty Christians where we can say, well, we've, we've, we've fought the good fight. We need a break now. We're going to kind of do our own thing. No, he is after the heart. And the key to the passage is in verse 5, chapter 7, verse 5, where he says, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and the seventh and for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? That's the question. For whom did you fast? And then he goes on to say, and when you eat and you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous? So he asks the question, for whom are you doing this religious exercise? For whom did you fast? Almost always prescribed fasts in history when demanded unbiblically of the church of people, for example, that they must do this fast. Almost always prescribed fasts have become, for most, simply forms and works righteousness. The Lord then in this passage is uncovering the heart because the form did not produce godliness and form in and of itself never does. And in the words of our Presbyterian forefather T.V. Moore, these people are being forced to ask, do I have godliness and true piety at the heart of my life? Is it at the root Selfishness is the bane of all true piety as godliness is its essence. Now, there may be people here also today, and you simply have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Many have only a form of religion because they do not have new hearts, because they are dead in trespasses and sins. And if that is you, you must be born again. Without the Spirit of God within you, you can never hope even to understand what we talk about when we speak of, of true piety and true godliness in the heart. But speaking to the people of God this morning, true believers can be so influenced by worldliness, we can open the door to, 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 to viewpoints and ideas and feelings from without. We can be so influenced by worldliness 
that we also can fall into just routine religion. Are your hearts warm toward God? Does your heart have a passion for His glory? Are you cold within your heart toward the Lord? Do you remember a day when it was otherwise? Would you like to see those days again? Would you like to be a person that believes and repents? Well, these people wanted to stop fasting. They asked the question, should they continue? But they had in their hearts sin over which they should be lamenting. In other words, if ever there were still a people, those from Bethel who sent the question, if ever there still were a people, evidently, that needed to fast, that is to say, lay aside everything and do business with God, then they were those people. Not just as a matter of form, but because God would have their hearts. And so, as with their fathers, the prophets call, but they would not respond. Chapter 7, verse 13. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. So they did not listen to the word of God. Look at verse 12. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. They made their hearts diamond hard. Now, in Isaiah 58, the prophet said in verses 6 through 8, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. So they disregarded the prophets. We would say today, they disregarded the Bible. They disregarded God's Word. What about you? What about me? Have you read your Bible this past week? When you read your Bible this past week, did you pursue God in that reading? Or were you simply checking off that you had had your personal devotions? Were you seeking God on the pages of Scripture? Dads, are your hearts filled with Holy Scripture? Does it overflow and saturate your home so that your children are hearing the Word of God from you? the teaching of God's Word, the calling of the Lord from your lips, and its application in their lives. Student, are you building your life upon the Word of God, your ethics upon the Word of God? Are you, are you building your, your epistemology, your view of knowledge, how you know a thing upon the Word of God? 
Is the Bible your foundation? Is it your starting point in mathematics and in science, as well as in your prayer life? Or do you dichotomize? I'm going to try and be God's man or woman when I'm in my closet praying a little bit. But then when I go off and I hear the professor, I don't even think about what God's Word may say about the matter. What's true of you? Do you acknowledge the Bible's authority, absolute authority in your life? Is it definitive in all areas of life? As I say, including your ethics. Is the process of sanctification continuing as the Lord roots out sin in your life and patterns that perhaps have developed that have made you hard-hearted, diamond-hard? And so, in verse 11, he tells us they refused to pay attention. In verse 11, he tells us they turned a stubborn shoulder, all right, like, like an ox that doesn't want to go the way in which it is intended to go. In chapter 7, verse 12, they stopped their ears, and in chapter 7, verse 12, they had hard hearts. But keep your finger here and turn to Isaiah chapter 66, if you will. And please notice what God has to say to us in Isaiah 66. I'll begin reading with verse 1, and we'll be getting into verse 2. Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, who hears the word, submits to the word, trembles at the word. So, he speaks here of warning and the consequences of turning a deaf ear to the Word of God, developing a hard heart. If you follow your fathers in their sins, you must follow them also in their chastisements. And the point of verses 9 and 10, do you remember these are the the verses where he says, render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. The whole point of that call is that these are attributes of God. Impartial justice, not as we so often have in our land today even, justice that is very partial, that is really injustice, but completely impartial justice and mercy. Justice and mercy, the foundations of his throne. God is saying to them, give me your heart. I want your heart to be like my heart. I want you to have a heart like mine, to show mercy and compassion, to be just. These are attributes of God. And then God's chastisements in regenerate hearts is meant to root out sin and to conform us to the image of God's Son. And the chastisement, of course, for them was Babylonian captivity. It was a great chastisement indeed. But you remember how in the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews that cites Proverbs, it says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. God's chastisement in regenerate hearts roots out sin and makes our hearts again to be soft and tender and teachable. He will not let a true child of God stay in that hard-hearted condition. As one of the old authors said, thus they had closed the throne of grace against themselves and opened the throne of judgment. That's profound. The throne of grace was not shut to them, but by their own choice. They shut the throne of grace against themselves by their own rebellion. And this is the result of letting the world into our hearts and even the guise of religion and rejecting the word as their only infallible rule of faith and practice. Again, verse 12, they made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Which is, by the way, verse 12 is a very important Old Testament verse about the inspiration of the Bible. God's own words given through His Spirit, through the medium of the prophets, to these people that they are called to hear and to heed and to believe. We have less excuse. Because you see, we have a completed canon. We have the whole of the Word of God. So I want to ask the question of you, And yes, believe me, I've been preaching to myself. Is there anything in your life that is tending your heart toward hardness? Are you not heeding the Word of God? You know there's something there. You perhaps even know exactly what that thing is, and it's become a pet to you. Get it out of your life. And do it now. Now, that's the loving, caring, hard-hitting chapter 7. So it might seem very unusual to us that after sifting their hearts like this, the Lord gives to them a pile of promises. And he does. Ten times in chapter 8, it's thus says the Lord or thus says the Lord of hosts, always underscoring the promises that he is bringing to the people of God because he does not leave them in despair, and God will have his faithful people whom he will bless, which leads us to the second thing. We're going now to chapter 8, the promised blessing, the promised blessing. And God promises to bless his believing, repenting people in a context of fervent love. Notice verse 2 of chapter 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Compare chapter 1 verse 14, uh, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. He says then, in fervent love, with burning jealousy for his people, love for his people, and wrath upon those who oppose him. In that context, he's bringing the promises of God. And he gives, let me just summarize, basically in this chapter 8, he gives three promises to God's people. There's the promise of his presence, verse 3. 
Thus says the Lord, I've returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Ezekiel, you might remember, saw the glory departing from Jerusalem when God gave them over to Babylonian captivity. Now God says, I'm going to return. That is, my special presence is going to be there with you as my people. His glory will return. And there will be, um, Jerusalem will be a holy mountain, which already should give you the clue that he's not just talking about then and there, but something in the future. Because he's using language similar to what we read in the book of Isaiah in the second chapter, in which he says, And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, hear the similar language, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So his special presence, but also he promises them secondly, prosperity and peace. And he does this by giving them an image, just an image, a beautiful image too. In verse 4, of old men and old women sitting in the streets. They're there in safety, you see, and no one's bothering them. They don't live in cities where, uh, where there's, there's no safety. Uh, they're completely safe. And then the streets of the city, verse 5, shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a picture that he gives. It's an image that he gives of prosperity and peace and safety, of joy and of laughter. And in verse 6, he says, you think this is a marvel? I mean, you doubt that it's going to happen? Let me tell you, it's no marvel to me. I'm just going to do it. And he assures that he is going to bring about that kind of peace and safety and prosperity. And then in verses 7 and 8, this is the third promise he gives them. He gives them a, a promise that, um, that there will be a, a Jerusalem that will be filled with worshipers, overflowing from the nations. And he says, thus says the Lord, verse 7, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. A repopulated city. So when we look at these promises, we ask the question, when are these things to be fulfilled? And certainly there are promises here that have reference to the temple being built then, but any student of this passage, no matter what your eschatological position may be, is going to see that there's something that's in the future here, something that is yet to be fulfilled here. And my dispensationalist friends say this is the millennial reign. I completely disagree with that, with due respect. But I believe that Israel's promises belong to you, the people of God, the blood-bought people of God now. They belong to all of us as God's people, and that when we read such passages, we need to realize that the prophet used what was before him, and then he telescoped out, and he saw great things in the future that belong to the people of God in the Messianic age and in the 
new heavens and in the new earth, future blessings for the church. You see, if you, if you go to the New Testament, constantly you find passages like Romans eleven seventeen, which speaks of the, the nations that believe that are the Gentiles that are engrafted into the tree of Israel. Or you come to the very end of the book of Galatians that calls the church the Israel of God. Or you go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and around verses 9 and 10, you find all sorts of wonderful things said of ancient Israel that now apply to the church in the new covenant era. And we could go on and on with those sorts of examples if we but had the time. Or you might remember when we studied 1 Corinthians together that that you are the temple of God. It's not some future temple to be built. You are that temple that is indwelt now by the Holy Spirit. And the glory returning, the tenor of the passage points beyond the present setting. It cannot exhaust its meaning. When he says in verses 7 and 8, I will bring them to Jerusalem. He's going to bring them to Jerusalem. Jerusalem then and there could not have held all of these people. There's something in the future that he has in mind. This opened, enlarged Jerusalem that is mentioned already in chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, as we saw. Israel's promise of a future without alarm in verse 13. Do you see what's happening here? The Lord is saying to his people then, and he says to us now, lift up your eyes and look ahead to this glorious prosperity, safety, joy, laughter that I'm promising my people. I'm using, of course, the things familiar with the prophet but it's something that bursts the banks. It's far, far beyond what you can possibly understand now. And the ultimate fulfillment of all of this is the fulfillment of the covenant promise. Look at it in in verse 8. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. And God says, using the covenant formula, you will be my people and I will be your God. And it is ultimately fulfilled in the 21st chapter of Revelation when we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's what he promised there in Zechariah, the dwelling of God with Jerusalem. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God, fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. These promises belong to you and to me as blood-bought people of God. And the ground of the promise? Well, it's there in chapter 8, verse 15. So again, have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. He's purposed to do it, and therefore it will happen. Now, he called them to repentance. He's given them these promises. 
promises that have a greater realization than will be realized here. And now he answers the question that they asked back in chapter 7 about fasting. He addressed all the fasts, not just the one they asked about. And he says, in view of our saving relationship, in view of the distant future promises, the time is coming when your fasts will be turned into feasts. And he says that in verses 18 and 19 here in chapter 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast for the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the seventh, the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Luther put it this way, speaking as if this were God speaking, that is to say, unpacking the meaning. Keep only what I command, and let fasting alone. Yea, if ye keep my commandments, not only shall such fasts be over and come to an end, but because I will do so much good to Jerusalem, all the affliction for which ye have chosen and kept such fasting shall soon be forgotten, that ye will be transported with joy when ye think of your fasting and the heart's grief on account of which he fasted for the time. So God is saying to his people, the day is coming in which you will sing, soul adorn thyself with gladness. Leave the gloomy halls, haunts of sadness. That's God's promise to his people. And what makes this possible even now? Because there is the already and the not yet. Already there is this joy within our hearts. What makes it possible? I will tell you what makes it possible. The empty tomb makes it possible. Easter Sunday makes it possible. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the source and the anchor of our joy now in that future that is promised for us as the people of God. And what a privilege to live upon it. And how little we value it. How little we dwell upon it. How little it fills our hearts when it's there for the taking. I almost have no words but I'm not done. (laughs) So we have one other promise, and I want to single it out, and that's the promise that the nations will come. So the true, true Christian's faith impact upon the globe, one more incentive for their present labor and for our present labor for the kingdom is the promise of the universal blessing of the messianic period, and he predicts the enlargement of the church with the Gentiles Those who once hated the Jew will now say, let us pray before Jehovah. I will go to, and in mosques they go to, Jerusalem. And from all tongues and nations, it says, they're going to to seize the hymn. That means they're earnest, they're eager. They're going to seize the the hymn of the Jew. And they're going to want to go, and they're going to want to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. And this began when Jesus came and is still taking place. The promised messianic kingdom has come and is still coming. And I wonder if it fills your heart as it should that you, believer, sitting here today, 
are in part the fulfillment of that promise. You are the Gentiles who are now streaming into Jerusalem. You are the Gentiles who are worshiping the living and true God, though once we were dead in trespasses and sins. And then he gives this profound image in verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And by taking the the hymn of the the Jew, he's taking the hymn of the, the messianic believer, the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and responding to the gospel message. It's a beautiful image, but it also could be, literally in the Hebrew it says, they take the, 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 the hymn of a man, a Jew. And it very well may be that he has, that the Lord is having his own son in mind here, Christ, the incarnate Lord in mind here, It may be descriptive of Christ himself. Is the Lord working in your heart that you, many of you, now grab the hem of his garment and say, let us go with you. Let us go with you. Now I want to leave you with three final thoughts from these two chapters. The first of these thoughts is the danger of neglecting the Word of God. And I think that's the great problem in the church in America in our day. And it's the struggle of every believer, but it's a danger, a real danger. Now, Thomas Goodwin the Puritan went to hear John Rogers of Dedham preach, and he told the Puritan John Howe what had happened there, and John Howe wrote it down. And this is what happened. He told me, Goodwin told Howe, he told me that being himself in the time of his youth a student at Cambridge, and having heard much of Mr. Rogers of Dedham in Essex, purposely he took a journey from Cambridge to Dedham to hear him preach on his lecture day. And in that sermon, he falls into an expostulation with the people about their neglect of the Bible. I'm afraid it is more neglected in our days. He personates, that means he impersonates. He personates God to the people, telling them, well, I've trusted you so long with my Bible, you have slighted it. It lies in such and such houses all covered with dust and cobwebs. You care not to look into it. Do you use my Bible so? Well, you shall have my Bible no longer. And he takes up the Bible from his cushion, and he seemed as if he were going away with it and carrying it from them, but immediately turns again and personates, impersonates the people to God, falls down on his knees and cries and pleads most earnestly, Lord, whatsoever thou dost to us, take not thy Bible from us, kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods, only spare us thy Bible, only take not away thy Bible. And then he personates, impersonates God again to the people. Say, you so? Well, I will try you a little longer, and here is my Bible for you. I will see how you will use it. 
whether you will love it more, whether you will value it more, whether you will observe it more, whether you will practice it more and live more according to it. By these actions, as the doctor told me, Goodwin told how, he put all the congregation, that is John Rogers when he was preaching, the Lord used him, he put all the congregation into so strange a posture that he never saw any congregation in his life. The place was a mere bockum. The people generally, as it were, deluged with their own tears. And he told me that he himself, when he got out and was to take horse again to be gone, was fain to hang a quarter of an hour upon the neck of his, house, of his horse, weeping, before he had power to mount. So strange an impression was there upon him, and generally upon the people, upon having thus expostulated with for neglect of the Bible. Enough said. Second point. I want to give you this point with a question. Why did God give the answer to the question about fasting at the end of chapter 8? Now, I asked myself that question. And I believe the answer is their hearts had to be prepared to receive the promises by repentance. So he calls them to repentance. I guess we assume that there is repentance between chapters 7 and 8, and then he gives them the promises because there is a relationship between repentant hearts and being able to take hold of the promised future and to get to work now in the fullness of hope for the future. This is experiential. I don't know how to describe it well. But almost every Christian has gone through a time in which you're just growing cold. You're not warm any longer to the Lord. Something is desperately wrong. And the more you hold on to those things that make you that way, the more miserable you are when you really could be filled with joy and life by simply going and really sincerely confessing your sins. And then you can go to the Bible and it's overflowing with promises and you can live upon those promises. Third thing, far off promises should give you hope and should give you courage. That's what he's doing here. You can get to work to build the temple. You can get to work to serve the Lord. These far-off promises, some of them will be fulfilled here, but there will be a staging principle, and some of them far, far off. But all of these promises move you to be busy for my kingdom. Think of Second Peter chapter 3, the day of the Lord, the dissolution of the earth with fire. What manner of people ought you to be we are asked by Peter, when you consider that day, Jesus Christ returning, burning up the world, what manner of people ought you be? So God is building and will build His church. He is at work in history, and Jesus is coming again. And those are the promises that we have to live upon, people of God. And oh, that we did so. Oh, let us now live upon the promises of God. What manner of people ought you and I, ought we to be when we have such precious promises?
So maybe you're going to go get on your horse or get in your car and turn the key. I guess you don't turn keys anymore much, do you? But you're going to, maybe it'll be 15 minutes before you can turn the key. Push the button. Because you know you need to do business with God now. You know, you don't have to wait. You can do it right now, right now, within your heart. And let's be a congregation that lives in the fullness of the promises of our dear Lord. Amen and amen.